At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a culture filled with promises for a better life, deeper satisfaction, and greater purpose, but how do we know which is right? We invite you to join us for Smoke and Mirrors, deciphering truth in a world of truths, where we'll look to scripture to expose the illusions of our culture, and together, hold fast to a better answer, God's. Well, good morning. So great to be here worshiping with all of you again. Uh, my name is Chris Shea. I'm a part of the teaching team. If we have not had the chance to meet uh, over the years, then I'd love to shake your hand on the way out. I'm a huge sci-fi nerd, so there's a little something about me. Uh, and you can tell me something about yourself, a little fun fact or tidbit as you leave today. But for now, I'd like to uh, just subject you to this little bit of sci-fi nerd in me. Because in his book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Douglas Adams describes a powerful supercomputer named Deep Thought. Uh, and this supercomputer was built for one single purpose in order to find an answer, to use all of its computational abilities to determine the answer to life, the universe, and everything. <laughs> And obviously, this is no easy task, even for a supercomputer. And so Deep Thought says it's going to take a long time in order to determine the answer to life, the universe, and everything. In fact, it is going to take seven and a half million years. Seven and a half million years. And so the people wait. They wait seven and a half million years until the projected date finally arrives and people from all over gather around deep thought so they can all find out the answer to this question that they have been waiting generation after generation to find out. And finally, deep thought delivers, as requested, a simple, unambiguous answer. That the answer to life, the universe, and everything is 42. 42? <laughs> Someone from the crowd yells, is that all you've got to show for seven and a half million years of work? To which Deep Thought replies, oh, I checked it very thoroughly, and that quite definitely is the answer. I think the problem, to be quite honest with you, is that you've never actually known what the question is. You see, everyone wants to know the meaning of life. But to get the right answer, we have to ask the right question. And in many ways, this is what we are doing in this new series in the book of Ecclesiastes together. You see, the author of this book, who's called The Preacher, uh, is a son of David. He's a wise king who is also struggling with this very same thing. He, too, wonders, what is the answer to life, the universe, and everything? What is the purpose and meaning of it all? So if you haven't already, would you please join me in your Bibles or your Bible apps? Uh, feel free to open them up and just find yourself with me in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. It's here uh, where the preacher begins to examine every single thing that he can under the universe in order to find meaning and purpose in life. And so last week, we saw him look to naturalism, 
right, to see if, if it could provide a satisfactory answer. And as he did this, all he found was that the world is in an endless cycle, right? The world just keeps repeating itself like a broken record over and over again. And so meaning, purpose, uh, all of this from nature, it's elusive. It, it, it's all an illusion. It's all smoke and mirrors, but if meaning isn't found there, if meaning isn't found in nature and naturalism, then maybe it's found somewhere else. And so the next topic that the preacher goes into and he begins to explore is intellectualism. Intellectualism. It's the idea that satisfaction and meaning and purpose in life can be obtained by obtaining great knowledge, wisdom, and information. And this temptation is still very much a part of the world today. Make no mistake about it. It's just ironic <laughs> because this is the age of information, right? With the dawn of the internet and mobile computers, we have access to more information than ever before. All kinds of facts, data, and information, and yet people still long for an answer to the ultimate question. We all long for the answer to life, the universe, and everything. And so my question, and the question of the preacher in Ecclesiastes is this, why does more wisdom lead to more questions? Why does more wisdom lead to more questions? Read with me Ecclesiastes chapter 1, starting in verse 12. It says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given the, to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge." And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. So the first place the preacher starts is with rigorous, calculated, unmatched, intellectual pursuit. He says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out the answer. How? By obtaining wisdom. And what is the scope of his study here? What is he seeking to understand? All that is under heaven. And he gives us a glimpse, just a little preview of, of the conclusion that he comes to here, because out of frustration, he says, what is this unhappy business? which God has given us to do. Because it doesn't bring satisfaction. It doesn't bring joy or happiness. It just feels like busy work. And you all know the difference, right? There's work that you enjoy doing, right? Because it's important. It has meaning behind it. And so you feel a sense of purpose and belonging when you engage with it. And then when you finish the task, you feel satisfied. You feel good about it. And then there's what we refer to as busy work, <laughs> right? This isn't anything that's urgent or really even important. It, 
It's the kind of stuff that really anybody could do. And to make matters worse, it's never really done, is it? It just keeps going and going because in its very definition, it, it is designed to keep you busy. It's the small, mundane, seemingly meaningless, meaningless stuff. And we hate it. We don't like that kind of stuff because you never feel satisfied with yourself. You never feel satisfied with the work that you've done. And it never ends. It just keeps going and going. So we feel like the hamster on the hamster wheel, right? That Pastor Tim Holdridge talked about last week. Constantly putting in work and effort, one foot after another, striving, exhausting ourselves, wearing ourselves out, and ultimately getting nowhere. And as the preacher reflects on his life, he says, I gave it my all. I dedicated myself to seek and search out all the wisdom and knowledge that is under heaven in an attempt to understand what the purpose and meaning of this life is. And despite all the wisdom and the knowledge that I've obtained, this life and everything in it just seems like busy work. It's small, it's finite, it's, it's mundane and meaningless. If you remember, chapter 1 began with the preacher expressing his frustration by saying, vanity of vanities, all of this, all of life is vanity. And in verse 14, we get to this familiar refrain again where he says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. You ever tried to grab hold of wind? I mean, I didn't think so because I'd be worried if you did, but we realize you can't, right? It's not something you can do, but it, I mean, it just kind of made me think of, of little kids on a hot summer day when they're blowing bubbles, because what do they do, right? They, they dip it in and they blow the bubbles, or maybe you blow the bubbles for them, and they will chase those things all around as they blow in the wind. And when they do this, they're trying to catch the bubble. They're putting in all this effort. And then right when they think they've got it, they open up their hand and nothing is there. All that work, all that effort for nothing. Emptiness. That's what the preacher's describing. That despite all the thinking and the understanding and the researching and the organizing and the cataloging of wisdom and information, the reality is that we will search and search and search for meaning and purpose in life in every place we can using all the best techniques and skills and all of our energy, and we too will come up empty, in vain, striving after the wind. Because, verse 15, you can't straighten out what is crooked, and you can't count what isn't there. In other words, this world is twisted. It's messed up because of sin, and it doesn't matter how much information or knowledge or wisdom you have or obtain. It doesn't matter how many books you've read or how many books you've written. It doesn't matter how many degrees that you earn or how many fancy letters you have behind your name or in front of your name, because true satisfaction, meaning, and purpose in life cannot be found in intellectualism. Okay, well, what happens when we are confronted with this information? We have questions. We have more questions. Why? 
Now, how is it that you know this? I mean, what makes you so sure about it? And so the preacher escalates his arguments. He takes them up to the next level by not just describing his intellectual pursuits, but by describing his experience in the world as well. And so in verse 16, he reminds us once again of just how intelligent he is. He says, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And then he adds this, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And so what did he do with the wisdom and knowledge? He actually put it to use. He experienced it, or as verse 17 puts it, he applied it to his life. And so this is where he begins telling us about his life skills, right? His street smarts. He says, I applied this to both wisdom and folly, right? So he's not just a geeky, bookworm, smarter than everyone else kind of guy. He also went out and partied harder than everyone else. Drugs, alcohol, girls, you name it. He tried to find satisfaction, meaning, and purpose in life in the foolishness of this world, and it still didn't work. He says that too was like grasping after the wind. So he tried living life the right way or the wise way, and he tried living life the wrong way or the foolish way, and in the end he was left with nothing because none of it could provide the satisfaction, meaning, and purpose that he longed for. And so he ends this section by concluding in verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation. For he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. So let me break it down for you. Ignorance is bliss. The way I see it, more knowledge, more sorrow. More answers, more frustration. More wisdom just leads to more questions. True satisfaction, meaning, and purpose in life cannot be found in intellectualism. And maybe you can relate to the preacher today because you've been laboring, you've been working hard to be the smartest person in the room, to, to have all of life's answers, to know everything about everything because you thought that it would bring you a sense of peace and purpose and meaning in your life, but it hasn't. And so you too are frustrated with life because it seems pointless, it seems meaningless. Or, I mean, because I know we have a lot of good Christian boys and girls here today, maybe is it possible that you grew up in the church singing songs, memorizing Bible verses, but that it was all just facts, data, and information, just head knowledge? Is it possible that you know a lot about Jesus, but that you don't actually know him? And that's why you're so frustrated in your faith, why at times you wonder, is all of this even worth it? And whether it's secular knowledge or it's a superficial religious knowledge, the preacher of Ecclesiastes says all of it, all of this is just striving after the wind. Now, if that's all the preacher had to say, this would be a pretty sad and discouraging book. But the scriptures always point us away from ourselves and our own empty pursuits in order to point us to God. And so if we want to find meaning and purpose in life, then we have to look to him as the source for all meaning and purpose. And this makes perfect sense. Listen to me, especially when we are talking about knowledge and wisdom, because God has wisdom beyond our understanding. 
God has wisdom beyond our understanding. This is the conclusion that the preacher comes to in just, just a few chapters later. In chapter 8, verse 16, he says this, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. And so here we see that the preacher's search for meaning and purpose in life through intellectualism, by obtaining all this wisdom and knowledge, has left him utterly exhausted, right? To the point where he can't even sleep at night. He says, neither day nor night do one's eyes find sleep. And so he is plagued by this. He can't let it go. He tosses and turns in his bed all night long. He just can't turn his mind off. And then something happens. He considers God. And Psalm 1-7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In verse 17, he says, then I saw all the works of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. And so when he is finally able to get a glimpse of God's works, God's ways, God's infinite wisdom, he realizes that he is completely inadequate and incapable of understanding it all. That despite his diligence and his hard work through education and his experience, no one, no finite and flawed human being can know completely what God is up to in the universe. So when we look to God, we see that his infinite knowledge and wisdom is who he is and we are not. God reminds us of this very thing in Isaiah 55, 8, saying this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. When we come to understand this, that he is the almighty creator and sustainer of the universe, and that he has far more knowledge than we could even imagine, and his wisdom is superior to our own, it humbles us. It leads us to worship. Right? This is something the Apostle Paul called the church in Corinth to do because the Corinthian church was dividing itself along the lines of intellectualism. Right? Like their Athenian neighbors, Corinth was full of philosophers and wisdom preachers. And so Paul tells them this in 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 20, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. See, you cannot determine to know God simply by wisdom, by attaining more facts, data, and information about God. Salvation is of the Lord. 
It is God's work. And faith comes by hearing. By hearing what? The gospel. The good news of Jesus, which is why we preach Christ. And we preach Christ crucified. And that, Paul says, is crazy. It's so upside down and backwards from the way the world wants to approach this because the Jews, hey, they want science. They want miracles for someone to prove that they are the Messiah. The Greeks, they want wisdom. They, they want more knowledge. It's all about elaborate philosophical systems and eloquent rhetorical speeches and devices. Those are the things we want when it comes to an encounter with God. And instead, what does God give us? What does God determine to be the means by which he reveals himself to us and unleashes his divine power of salvation? <laughs> the cross. <laughs> the cross. And this, listen, this is so difficult for us to, to wrap our minds around today because the cross for us, it's pretty. You know, I, I mean, it's, it's jewelry. We, we wear it around our necks. But in biblical days, the cross was equivalent to pain and suffering, humiliation and shame. The cross was a symbol of death. It was anything but pretty. I remember when I was younger, hearing someone say that if Jesus was killed 20 years ago, it would have been in an electric chair. And so churches would all have an electric chair on display up front. Christians would all have an electric chair bumper sticker on their car, electric chair t-shirts and jewelry around our necks. And of course, when I say that, you laugh, you chuckle, and you think, that is ridiculous. <laughs> and that's exactly the point that Paul is making. In the world's search for wisdom, the cross just doesn't make sense. It is foolishness, and so it becomes a stumbling block to them. And we actually have evidence of this kind of thinking uh, through archaeological digs. In Rome, a wall was excavated with an etching on it. Uh, someone had effectively put what we would call graffiti on this wall. And as they uncovered the picture on this wall, they realized it was actually a picture of someone hanging on a cross. But the person who's hanging on the cross had the head of a donkey. And at the base of the cross is another figure apparently bowing down in worship. I brought a picture of this so you can see exactly what I'm talking about, if we could put that up. To the left, you see the actual inscription on the wall. It's, it's a little uh, hard to see, so on the right is just kind of uh, all the bumps and everything taken out for you. But you can see what this is, right? If you see the, the Greek letters that are kind of scrolled across there, uh, it says, Alexamenos worships his God. And so this is what some people might call hate speech today. It was made by someone who knows this person named Alexamenos or Alex. He knows that he's a Christian, a Christ follower. But what is it that he understands about Christians? That they worship a helpless, powerless, crucified Messiah. And that just doesn't make any sense. And so he draws this crucified figure with the head of a donkey, an ass, making a public mockery of Alexamenos and his claims of Christianity because it was foolishness to him. The cross was a stumbling block to the world. Oh, but to those who are called. 
to those who are called, our eyes and our hearts have been opened and we have seen the sinless Son of God who gave himself as an offering for us. A substitutionary atonement, taking the holy wrath and fury of God uh, of our sins onto his shoulders and that in exchange we are washed clean, we are given, we are gifted with his perfect righteousness so that we could be adopted into the family of God as fellow heirs with Jesus. And so the cross has been transformed. It is no longer a symbol of death. It is a symbol of life. We love the cross because it is God's power, divine power and wisdom on display for the world to see. It's why communion, the Lord's Supper for us, is a celebration of the finished work of Christ on the cross It's what Paul says in verse 24, that on the cross, we see that Christ is the power of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. And so we come to the same conclusion Paul does in verse 25, that even what appears to be the foolishness of God is still wiser than the smartest man. Even the perceived weakness of God is still stronger than the strongest man. Because we are finite, fallen fallible creatures, limited in so many ways, and God has wisdom way beyond our understanding. So how do we respond to this? Well, we we can keep looking to ourselves and the limits of our own knowledge and understanding. We can remain caught in this vicious cycle of confusion and frustration and discouragement and depression, the way the preacher apparently lived most of his life. Or we can listen to his advice. We can learn from his mistakes and come to the same conclusion that it is wiser for us to humbly admit that we are finite beings with fallen minds who are incapable of understanding everything that happens in this world. And that is okay. Because God has wisdom beyond our understanding. And therefore, it leads us to worship him. That's why Paul says to the Romans this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? And the preacher of Ecclesiastes comes to the same conclusion. It's our big idea today that God is all-knowing. God is all-knowing. And so rather than getting frustrated with all the things that we do not know about the world or understand about the ways of God, we are invited to find rest and be content within our own limitations and to worship God for who he is in his superior wisdom because God is all-knowing. And that, among his many other divine attributes, makes him worthy of our adoration, our praise, and our worship. You know, that Roman wall that I mentioned earlier, it's interesting that excavation, uh, about that excavation is that they kept going. They kept uncovering more and more of this wall. And what they realized is that while the first person had come along and and done this graffiti that had mocked Aleximenos, saying Aleximenos worships his God, Just a little further down the wall, apparently someone else had written a response 
right? Someone had come along afterwards and they had written a rebuttal to this. And the response was simply this, Alexa Menos is faithful. I think that sums up everything. God is not asking us to be the smartest people in the world, right? We don't all have to run out of here and go try and get PhDs, but he is asking us to remain faithful. Faithful in the face of naturalism, intellectualism, individualism, all the other isms that the world looks to for meaning and purpose apart from God. Faithfulness in the face of temptations as they come our way, faith, faithfulness in the face of persecution and difficult times, when things happen to us or around us in this world that we just don't understand, all he asks is that we remain faithful. And we can do that when we let go of our selfish desires to have all the answers. When we let go of our desire to know the answer to life, the universe, and everything. And we run to the Father. We run to the Father and we trust in His perfect wisdom, confident that He and He alone is all-knowing. May we find peace and comfort and rest in this truth today. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.